The Process, a podcast about creativity and experimental music. In the world of experimental music, outcomes and accolades for creators can be uncertain and at times seem far and few between. Therefore, creators and practitioners of experimental music must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one creator and their music. Understanding how and why they create can inform aspiring creatives and help audiences better understand and navigate experimental music. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of experimental music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Bielmeyer. Welcome to The Process. Uh, in today's episode, we'll be talking with Christopher Stark. Um, we'll listen to a little bit of his music here in a minute, as well as learn a little bit more about his career. Christopher made a really great point um, that you'll hear um, towards the end of the episode. We talk a lot on the show, and, and if you've been listening to the other episodes, about hard work. And um, it comes from one of the creative cogitations that discusses, you know, hard work versus talent. And probably being a teacher, a professor, um, as well as, you know, a student, a uh, former student, um, this idea of talent versus hard work. And, you know, it comes down to there's some people that are very talented. Uh, there are some people that just work really, really hard. And, and throughout the podcast, at least the first two seasons, talking to many creatives, some felt one was more important than the other. But Christopher made a really interesting point that, you know, we often talk about hard work, putting in, you know, the, the tough work or the work that it takes to get a piece done. But he also talked about easy work. And that got me thinking about all the little things that one needs to do, just not only to finish a piece, but just sort of maintain a career and be a creator in the current industry and current landscape. And, you know, I, I thought a little bit about it. What is easy work? Well, easy work is working every day for an hour, two hours. It's sending that email. It's following up with that ensemble. It's all the little things that we have to do to sort of maintain our career. We can't just be locked away for hours and hours on end doing the hard work of creating the piece. There's all these other little things that we have to do as well. And also, if you're looking and striving for a sort of healthy, creative lifestyle, doing a little bit every day is probably better than doing nothing at all. Um, I'm reminded by of the quote, uh, a famous quote from the internets uh, about anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Uh, because at least doing something poorly is better than doing nothing at all. And I think maybe that's at the core of this idea of easy work. And, you know, you won't go down in history as being someone who did the easy work, right? We don't hear stories about composers and creatives and directors and musicians who just like did a little bit every day. Those aren't the stories we glorify. 
it's the stories of, you know, this sort of binging and sort of uh, long creative sessions and intense situations. Those are the stories that get shared. And I think Christopher made a really great point about talking about easy work. So without further ado, let's learn more about Christopher Stark, uh, listen to some of his music and hear about his process. Christopher Stark, whose music the New York Times has called fetching and colorful, has been awarded prizes from the Guggenheim Foundation, Chamber Music America, the Barlow Endowment, and the Fromm Foundation at Harvard. Named a rising star by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, his music and arrangements have been performed by ensembles such as the Detroit Symphony, Los Angeles Philharmonic, Toronto Symphony, and members of the St. Louis Symphony. Recent highlights include performances at the 2016 Santa Fe Chamber Music Festival and at the Whitney Museum of American Art as part of the 2016 New York Phil Biennial. In 2018, he lived in Bergen, Norway, where he worked with musicians from the Bit 20 Ensemble. And in 2020, he was a resident artist in Italy as the Aaron Copeland Fellow in Music. His recent film scores have been featured at the Sundance Film Festival in 2017, and his debut CD, Seasonal Music, was released in 2019 on Bridge Records. I learned a lot about notation. I, I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to be a composer who started with notation, learned the history of notation, expressed myself through notation. And I love that music. And I think I had some pieces that were successful doing that, but I didn't necessarily feel like it was my, my voice when I was doing that. And so sure. um, often I'll just plug that, those audio files into, I use Logic um, Pro yep. and I'll start, you know, pitch shifting things, looping things, um, processing things, seeing if that there might be some kind of uh, rhythm present in something, and then maybe taking that bit of rhythm and, you know, doing pretty traditional stuff to it, you know, putting it in sure. canon, you know, right. diminution, augmentation, right. um, you yeah. know, yeah. using a lot of pitch shift to try out different harmonic areas. Uh, 
and just building stuff basically out in logic, uh, just with, you know, any sort of sounds that I've collected. And sometimes I will actually ask uh, the performers for sounds as well. I, I did that in this, this recent piece as well. I said, hey, can you guys send me some sounds, you know, maybe some harmonic trills or just some harmonics or some, mm -hmm. some multiphonics, um, something, you know, that you think is interesting. And I will also use those. Um, and in this, in this most recent piece, I used those in Max. I do a lot of experimentation in Max MSP along with Logic. Sure. Logic is kind of where I kind of like put my more concrete ideas and then Max is where I kind of build out algorithms that, that generate sounds that I think is interesting. And um, so I used actually those instrumental sounds to build a sampler that has a lot of weird randomization in it mm -hmm. um, and basically improvise on a MIDI keyboard with that weird randomized sampler um, so that there's always some element of intuition involved and mm -hmm. listening involved both obviously through the field recording, but through improvisation where you're just kind of responding to, um, in this case, basically responding to like the randomization that was present in this like algorithm in Max and then making a decision based off of that and then seeing if it sounds cool or not and then putting that into logic and, you know, cementing something there and going back and forth between these two things. So do you have maybe several, you know, logic sessions or, or sessions in DAW, uh, in a DAW, where you have maybe a piece minus something else, or, you know, almost a complete idea. Um, how does the process, so do you then get a commission? Do you then like, you know, is there a duo that you're going to write for? Or is there an ensemble you're going to write for? Do you find yourself then taking that sort of uh, really uh, electroacoustic or, or sort of uh, electronic idea and bringing instruments into that or what's the what's the process to if you're then going to because do you ha you have pieces that are just electroacoustic that ha that don't involve quote unquote other human beings is that correct or, or, or i don't actually i don't actually have any electroacoustic music just even a though tape I, piece like just a, a tape piece no yeah. tape pieces yeah. even though i keep yeah. telling myself that maybe that's where where yeah. i should be is right. just making those pieces because i i love that yeah. that music and i love so much experimental electronic music uh, and sure. indie electronic music um but i usually start with a commission and um right. or a collaborator uh that yeah. has asked for a piece um yeah i always i think i always have the instruments the instrumentation before I start the process. So I am aware of the setting, um, whether it's in a, you know, a large ensemble in a big concert hall or a, a small ensemble that's more mobile and the setting can be, you know, more unusual. So I have an, a sense of that, like what maybe the sound reinforcement might be like, or what, you know, rehearsal process might be like. And I definitely consider that a lot when I'm making the kind of, yeah, basically electronic piece that I'm going to then kind of either purely orchestrate without any of the electronics left in it or, you know, supplement instrumental sounds with the electronic sounds. Oh, so you're saying the electronic sounds are the things you create in Max or even on your sound walk. Those could just be stand-ins for the acoustic instruments. Those, the, those sounds might not be in the final product right? yeah. and rather are just sort of inspiration for, uh, you know, the, the written part. Um, yeah. Or the, the, the notated part, I guess. Yeah. Um, so when, okay. So then at what point in this process, 
so you've you've done a you've done a, a sound walk, you've done a walkabout, you've done some recordings, and this could be based on, you know, I have to write for a, a flute duo, so maybe I'm going to go and get some materials. So at what point then do the musicians get involved in sort of the interpretation of the piece? When when do the musicians? Is it when you've written something down on uh, on paper? Um, do they come in and experiment with you or improvise with you? When do you get uh, the musicians involved? So again, I'll speak to this most recent piece. The only involvement so far the musicians have had is sending me a few audio samples uh, at the beginning of the process. And um, now I'm basically um, making a notated score and they'll perform that notated score. But I will say that I'm very, um, uh, this, ha- this piece hasn't been performed yet, but I am hoping anyway that I can present them with a score and then we can have some back and forth about how it could be more interesting to them or how it could be more interesting to me. And that it can be, it doesn't have to be set in stone. And that is something new as well. This is not something I really have done before. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously because I'm in this piece, I'm working with people that are going to be open to that and have the time sure. to do that. And, you know, we have a relationship like that. You know, if I was writing for a, an orchestra, I probably wouldn't do that. I would have, you know, a very specific score that they put together in an hour or whatever. Right. It would be hard to get feedback from 64 people to <laughs> like, like anything that you, you're like, okay, so you want more, the cellos want more cello. <laughs> uh, less, more or less difficult parts. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you, you have a back and forth and you kind of have this uh, healthy back and forth with musicians. Um, how do you know when a, a piece is done? Is it ever done? I, I do think it's done. Um, it takes me a long time to accept that part of it. Um, maybe that's for everybody. Yes. Cause I, um, <laughs> but I definitely know when I feel like something is finished or that I have exhausted what I feel like is possible for my brain to do with this piece of music. And then maybe in the future I could look back on it and say, Oh, you know, I wish I would have done this with that. But I, I definitely usually reach a point where I feel like it's, it's complete and, you know, classic things like this thing has to be performed at this time and it has to be given to these people at this time uh, matters. But that often, you know, like, I mean, maybe I shouldn't reveal this, but I'm, I'm not very good with deadlines because I don't really like turning something over that I don't feel like is done. Right. But then when it is done, I do, I, I will turn it over, but there isn't, I won't turn it over before that point before I feel like it's complete. Yeah. And, you know, meeting the deadline and then reworking it after. Yeah, I do do that. Not, Mm -hmm. um, well, I shouldn't say sometimes significantly. Yeah. Sure. Um, I don't want something, you know, out there that I think doesn't work or I don't want Mm -hmm. something that's poorly written to remain poorly written. So I, I will fix, you know, if this, let's say there's just like a random bassoon measure or two that are awkward, I'll fix them. Or if there's a whole section of a piece that feels too short, I'll add more material or if, you know, yeah, I change things quite substantially actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting what you said about deadlines, because I think traditionally, you know, I work to deadline, like it's done when the deadline is there, but I like this idea of, well, there is the deadline, but not putting something out that's not finished. 
I, I guess I would, I would struggle a little bit with never thinking anything is finished really, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, forget the deadline. I, you know, it's like, it's not finished. And, uh, sometimes for me, at least the deadline helps me say like, well, it's due. So it's done. Uh, yeah. That's the, that's the kinder thing to do for the people that play your music. I, <laughs> I usually have to kind of, you know, send a lot of really apologetic emails and yeah. exchange a few, you know, yeah. uncomfortable emails, but I, yeah, I just have a very hard time. Yeah. Doing that. But then they, but then they get something that you are, you're a hundred percent sure of, or you're, you're, uh, you're confident in. Well, at least closer to a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Well, let's talk about the language of landscapes and specifically scene four, um, which we've uh, heard a little bit here on uh, the episode so far. So this piece was um, commissioned by both a duo named New Morse Code, uh, which is Mike Capitello and Hannah Collins, which is percussion and cello. And uh, we applied for a grant from Chamber Music America in 2014 to work on this piece. And they wanted a a large piece for their duo. They're kind of making a new repertoire for this kind of unusual instrumentation. And so we worked on a 20 minute piece and um, we collaborated a lot in the process, which is why I shared this piece because it's that was sort of a real turning point for me uh, musically, this piece was. And it's a process that I've tried to emulate in future pieces because I really liked the outcome of having the instrumentalists so involved and having the freedom to feel like I could experiment and uh, try things. And we're actually kind of still, we have recorded the piece and it is, you know, finished, right. but we're still working on how to best present it because it has kind of unusual sounds and, and some amplification, mm -hmm. other kinds of processing. Um, and so it just feels like a piece that's like, for me, fun to live with. And I really like the people that I wrote and, and they're really wrote it for and they're really close friends. And um, it just was a very positive experience making this piece. You know what I loved about this piece is that um, right from the get-go, I knew this was not, the the changes and the transitions and the form of this piece were not gonna be determined by common practice. I can hear sort of water in the uh, river in the distance, but maybe this is a very localized recording of just some water. And um, I was like, this is going to define what's gonna happen in the piece. Yeah, no, it's definitely water. Lake, Lake, Lake Geneva. It's sort of at the lapping at the shore of a lake in upstate New York. 
Okay. It's funny because I heard the the lapping, but then in the sound file, off in the distance, you could hear that other. Is it other water moving, or is it just the sound off uh, the, the mountains or the hills? I'm I'm hearing some other. It could just be the sort of you know ambient uh, noise floor. Um, there is also traffic. There's a highway around the the lake, so you can hear that as well. Okay. Yeah. So maybe that was hearing that in the distance. So that was kind of nice. So you had this very intimate sort of uh, splashing and lapping, like you were saying, but then there, I also was kind of hearing that uh, environment around it. I think things I, I really didn't know where you were going uh, is when the, the sort of, I'm calling it a bit crusher sort of comes in and starts to obscure. We, we start to lose the water foundation or the lapping. Um, and it's sort of taken over by this bit crushing or this kind of distortion. Um, and it's also then even obscuring the cello and the percussion part. Yeah, it's it absolutely is bit crushing. And so I'm sort of uh, revealing there a couple of things. Um, one, I, I transcribed the water sound with a computer by doing exactly that, by basically like bit degrading it until all you're left with is the like loudest sort of uh, right. points of the audio file, which create get, was able to like notate the rhythm with MIDI doing that. Sure. Um, Two, I wanted to sort of create this sense of like um, obliterating this natural thing or yeah. creating some tension towards reintroducing another water sample after that, right. um, which then feels kind of like this uh, release, um, this sense of right. like coming back to water sound. And um, it's, you know, has some analogies to like drought and other kinds of things, but I'm also really interested in the representation of nature with in art and uh, mm -hmm. digital representation of, mm -hmm. of sound and finding ways of expressing digitization rather than yeah. just sort of looking back at traditional analog um, electronic music techniques and saying, well, like bit depth and, and sample rate are these things that are more contemporary and can be manipulated in a way that creates a musical discourse um, that is, I, I think, interesting and perhaps maybe more contemporary. The water returns, as you mentioned, and uh, I heard sort of now deep splashes and it was kind of counterpoint uh, to this sort of more, it almost sounded like a distorted kind of alarm. And it felt very, there was still that lapping or that rocking motion. And uh, it felt a little bit more aggressive. It felt a little bit more intense. Um, and then, because I'm a sucker for ambient and soft and quiet things, uh, at a, in the last section, about the last minute of the piece, we now have this very sort of ambient section. So what was that about, and how did that relate to the what we heard before? The very end is... Um an oscillating fan that's stereo mic'd. And uh, so the fan kind of blows in one mic and then oscillates mm -hmm. back and blows in the other mic, left ear, right ear. And it has this kind of like ASMR-y kind of effect because yeah. it's a very close mic. Yeah. Um, and I thought I was just looking for a noise source that I could filter to get pitches. So I thought, you know, clipping a microphone is an interesting way of getting a noise source outside of just kind of a digital noise or something that I could produce sure. in Max. And um, 
then looking for a way to clip it, I thought, well, I'll just blow into the microphone, but I'll use a fan to blow in the microphone. And then I'll just, you know, use resonance filters to create this little corral back and forth between the two microphones. And then the, the cello plays this little tune that actually shows up several times throughout the piece. So that's, that's kind of like a, it's just a couple harmonic series notes that happen throughout some of the other scenes. So what do you think? Do you believe in talent or hard work? And why did you pick this cogitation? I just find this question really interesting. And it's something that I've gone back and forth a lot. And mm-hmm. this may be unpopular, but I actually am now kind of on the side of talent a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know why, but <laughs> I just, I have met so many people that have just such a unique and special ability to to create that I, yeah. I just don't know if there's any other way of explaining it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Like, for example, I know one of, one of my very close friends is a composer named Sean Shepard. Mm-hmm. And I swear to God, he just hears like in 4D. Like when yeah. he yeah. composes and orchestrates, it's like he's hearing in four dimensions. And when I compose and orchestrate, I hear in two dimensions. And I, yeah. and I don't know yeah. how to describe that. I mean, he's, I feel like he's been able to do that his whole life. And it, it's like a... I don't know how to, yeah, you can work hard to achieve that, but I feel like if you just have that when you're 18, it's like, right. Yeah. (laughs) Sets you on a path. Cause I've definitely sat in concerts where I listen and I'm like, wow, not only is this a very unique and interesting idea, but it seems very intuitive to the person. And I'm like, what a great idea. I'm like, you know, you could sit around for, for months and weeks and this person had this just great idea. I think film's the same way too. You just look, you watch one director tell a story versus another and you're just like, same story, totally different, totally different outcome. So could talent alone, so one of the ways I interpret this is, could talent alone be the necessary foundation for a career? Probably, it, it could, yes, but probably not. I mean, it would be more rare, but you know, how many people make their entire living off of a single piece of music? Uh, I think a lot of people, even the most famous composers in the world have one piece that made them famous. And I think if you, you know, lightning strikes and your Mm -hmm. talent aligns, you don't necessarily have to, you know, Mm -hmm. sit in your office for 30 years before you can 
make money writing music or something. You could just have a great idea when you're 23 years old and makes you a bunch of money. Um, right. Not to say that money is, you know, why we do what we do, but I think you could make a career off of that for sure. Um, you know, I, the hard work thing though is complicated because it's always hard work, right? It's not like work. It's like hard work. And this is my kind of like, airport bookstore slash Malcolm Gladwell shift here. But what about like easy work? A lot of people easy don't work. know how to do easy work, which is just working two hours a day every day. A lot of people, a lot of us know how to like binge a 12 hour work yes. session and yeah. stay up all night and write a term paper, but not a lot of people know how to like work for 30 minutes every day. Well, uh, Christopher, this has been uh, fantastic. It's been great talking to you. Um, before I let you go, um, can you tell us a little bit about where we can go to find out more about you uh, and your music? Uh, I have a website, which is Christopher-Stark.com. Um, I have a couple things up on, you know, Spotify and iTunes music and things like that. Uh, not a ton of my output, but all my stuff is basically on my, my website to listen to. Thanks to Christopher Stark for sharing his opinions and music with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out other episodes in the series and like and subscribe or leave a comment on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and this has been The Process.